morning. Good morning, everybody. We have uh, cool air in here, and it's quiet, cool air. Hallelujah. The AC guy has worked really, really hard. The system is not, he just makeshifted things all day yesterday, Friday and yesterday to, to give us cool air. I'm very, very grateful uh, for him, and I expressed that to him. I said, thank you for making us all happy. Most importantly, me. Thank you for making us happy that we can just not have the hum of the, those ACs. But thanks for enduring with us, and it's been uh, it's been a, a long haul. We were mentally prepared for three or four weeks, not eight. And so when it got to be that, it was like, how are we going to do this? But the Lord's good, and he's been answering our prayers over the past few weeks. The system is not fully uh, completed, so over the next couple weeks, we'll just be uh, getting everything else online. Oh... Uh, Next Sunday, with Baptism Sunday, we're going to do the evening gathering, but next Sunday is Pentecost Sunday as well, which it's very appropriate for us to do a baptism on Pentecost Sunday because it's the birth, it's celebration of the birth of the church. Uh, and, and when baptism is a celebration of those that God has added to the church, and as Levon led us uh, to welcome into the family, so it's, it's a family gathering for us to celebrate as well as to just to see the glory of God in how he has moved in the lives of his people and joining them to him. So please make plans to join us next Sunday evening for that. All right, if you would please open your Bibles to James chapter 5. <clears throat> to the silence. Hear pages again. James chapter 5, in, in our series of making Christ visible as we go through the one another's of the New Testament for the church, uh, today is a unique one, and as we look into it, uh, again, uh, when we are seeking these one another's, we're, we're doing more of a systematic approach to them where we look at the concept as a whole and how it's reflected in God and how we are called to uh, reflect that character of God in one another. And that's what we'll do again. James 5, verse 16. The Apostle James says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Lord, we need your help, and we need the power of your Spirit to understand what you want to accomplish in our hearts. So, Holy Spirit, we ask for your illumination. We ask for the grace of conviction. We ask for the grace to obey, to obey what you're calling us to do. And, Lord, I pray that that would show forth in our lives as we live together as your family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, over the past few weeks uh, in our community group, uh, in reviewing the sermons <clears throat> that we've been going through in the One Another series, our times have been filled with remembering people in our past whom God has used to show Jesus to us through some aspect of the One Another's that we've looked at. All of us were recounting uh, stories of when somebody else, God used somebody to just show a devotion to us or greet us, or serve us, or stir up love and good deeds, or last week we reviewed who had been hospitable to us in our lives. Uh, and as we journey through this series, we need to think about, kind of think about a photo album. Uh, Milton gave me this 
he, and we were talking last week about the series. He said, you know, it's been like a photo album, family photo album that we've taken out, and we're reviewing pictures from our past where we, we're remembering, oh, yeah, yeah, remember that time? That, that was great. And, and, and flip a page, oh, and it's two years later, and then this person with, with the one another is we're looking at these different people in our lives. But you know, sometimes when you look through a family photo album, there's blank pages. Isn't that the bizarrest thing? You kind of like, why is it blank? And it could be blank because maybe those pages were stuck together or just somebody just flipped, went too far and, and flipped. Maybe pages, pictures have fallen out, and we don't know where those pictures are. But there's a weird thing of blank pages in our family photo albums. Now, I think if we think about this series, and, and if we're reviewing a photo album and God's grace in our lives, uh, the blank pages in our spiritual experience are confessing sin to because we don't want to do it. We don't like it. And we have our own initial response that we've learned from Adam and Eve that we just, nope. See, we, we need these pages in our photo album, even as our, in our experience and in our church life, as we are kind of gaining stability as a church and uh, walking and adding, God is adding to our numbers there's pictures that we are putting in the family photo album for other believers in our midst. And they, they need to be looking at us to see pictures of hospitality and stirring up loving good deeds and serving one another, greeting one another. But we also need to make sure that we're including pictures of confessing sin to one another. So today, our, our big thought caption to guide our time is confessing our sins to one another is a means of God's grace to restore fellowship as we experience God's love as the body of Christ and put as the family of God alongside of body of Christ. They're synonymous. So we want to consider that the confessing of our sins to one another is God's grace to put back together what's been broken so we can experience God's love in the body of Christ. Whenever confession is necessary, it's because fellowship has been broken. And there's a breach in our fellowship when sin happens. The context of James' admonition to confess our sins to one another is within the greater context of prayer. If somebody is sick, let him come to the elders and anoint with oil and pray for healing. That's the context to confess your sins. So what James is saying is you may not be healed from your sickness because you have not confessed your sin that you are harboring towards somebody else, or possibly they know you've sinned against them and you just won't repent. You won't confess. Now that's a, it's a, a, a tense connection because are we, is James saying that sickness is due to sin? Unanswered prayer is due to sin. Yes, he's saying that. But we have to look at the broader context of Scripture to understand that it's not always that, 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 that situation. So here, some, not all, sins cause sickness. Some sins cause sickness. Not all sins. So we can't make that a one-for-one. One. Look, John chapter 5, after Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, this is the man who was healed, the paralytic who was healed by the pool of Siloam. <clears throat> he says to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. So Jesus is connecting. You were paralyzed. Perhaps it was because of a particular sin 
in that man's life. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 30. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul writing to the church about gathering uh, for communion like we've done this morning. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and see, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Listen, this is why many of you are weak and ill. And some have died. Catch what Paul is saying. People in the church have died because they have not confessed their sins. And they've come and eaten the bread and drunk, drank the cup in remembrance in an unworthy manner. So we kind of messes with our thoughts about God. Said, Hold on a second. Why is that? Because this is a serious moment. And it's to be not just contemplative, but fellowship, we are fellowshipping with the Lord even in our communion, and we are to do that in a worthy manner. So there's connection points that a lot of times we don't make. Now, this does not mean that in order to be free from sickness is to confess everything and make sure, because not all sickness is caused by sin. We live in a fallen world with broken bodies. So sometimes it just happens. John chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So the disciples are making the connection. Sin causes this breach. Sin causes a, a brokenness that you're experiencing, causes this sickness. Jesus answered, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. See, some sickness is caused by sin not all sickness. Sometimes it's just we live in broken bodies, and God wants that to be an opportunity for a visible gospel demonstration with the healing that he provides for his people. So sin is a breach of fellowship. Whenever there is sin, we, so our relationship with God uh, suffers. It's not completely broken as if we are not believers anymore. We don't have the saving grace of God. Uh, we don't have to get saved again every time we sin. We don't have to, you know, we access the forgiveness that God has given us in Christ. We access that by confessing our sins to God and saying, God, this sin is coming in and sowing death to break our relationship and our fellowship. I want that restored, God. And we see that in the Psalms with David. Restore to me fellowship. Restore what's been broken. God will sometimes use unanswered prayer to capture our attention. He does that, doesn't he? And we have, we've been praying and laboring in prayer, and it's not come to fruition like we're asking. We begin the checklist of, is there something wrong with me? Is there a sin that I'm not, even if it's, it, when it's especially with physical suffering, is this unconfessed sin? Is God bringing this upon me because there's something I didn't confess? But God uses that so we understand what needs to be restored. Sin is a break in fellowship with God, and it's felt in our relationships with one another. When we don't get along with, we don't get along with others when our fellowship with God has been broken. And we don't get along well with God if our fellowship with others has been broken. So both, if our fellowship with God is broken, we're not getting along with people. So we have to, if we're getting irritated or frustrated, we've got to make sure we're pointing a light on ourselves, saying, hold on, am I right with God? Is he using this frustration to get my attention because there's, uh, there's a brokenness in the fellowship, there's a breach in the fellowship that I'm going to have with him? 
So if we're broken with God, we feel it this way. If we're broken with one another, we feel it in our relationship with God. Our spiritual health is affected by unconfessed sin. Our spiritual growth is stunted by unconfessed sin. And we find ourselves stalling in growth. We stall out in our experience of God's presence when there is unconfessed sin. Savon alluded to this when he led us in our communion time, Matthew 5, 23 and 24. So Jesus saying in Sermon on the Mount, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus is saying, if you have sinned against someone else, they know it, you know it. You need to understand that breaks, that it stalls out your experience of God's presence. So if you're coming with a gift and you think that that's going to help, be helpful, Jesus is saying, oh, no, 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 what's more helpful is that you restore the fellowship with your brother, then come offer your gift. Wasn't that Israel's problem at all in the Old Testament as they were serving other gods? They were serving their idols and yet coming to God saying, God, we're here for you. And all the prophets came and said, you don't get this. This is not right. You can't expect that, you're, that God's going to receive your gift when your fellowship with him is broken and there's been a breach because of your sin. All through the Old Testament, the prophets are trying to get the, the attention of the people of God because God was getting their attention, even coming to them saying, I don't want your gifts anymore. I don't want your sacrifices anymore. I want your fellowship. So confession is necessary when there's a, broke, a, a breach, a brokenness in our fellowship with God and one another. But here, in our second point, here's where we usually go. We are more apt to cover our sin than confess our sin. And we learned it from our first parents. But when they sinned, what did they do? They ran, they hid, and they covered themselves. They tried to deal with their own shame, their own way, and God was not going to let them get away with it. But understand, we have the same exact responses when we sin. We will run. How do we run? We ignore it. Might be the person that when you sin, uh, I'm just going to ignore and act like nothing ever, ever, ever happened. And you go along acting like nothing ever happened, and something still just feels weird about it. And, and relationships suffer, and there's a, there's a misunderstanding constantly, and we, don't, we can't figure out what really the issue is. Hiding. I think our hiding comes when we don't take responsibility for our sins. This kind of shows up in blame shifting. Adam's saying, it's this woman you gave me. So really, God, it's your fault. You weren't there for me enough. And I, I, I was, you, you gave all these promises to me, and now nothing's happening. So ultimately, God, you can't shift blame to God either or accuse God for not being better at changing us. God, if you just did more in changing me than this, I, I, I wouldn't have sinned in this way. Or I think hiding is just keeping sin secret. When we have unconfessed sin that we think God doesn't see, we deceive ourselves. He sees and he is relentless about coming after our hearts to purify us. And he won't leave us in our, our own little uh, bunkers of pride thinking that we can get away with stuff and ignore it, hide, blame, shift, do whatever just to keep it secret. So you know, our fellowship with God has been broken. There's a breach and it needs to be restored. And we cover our sin. I think we cover our sin with pride and with pity. 
justify our pride. We seek validation by giving reason after reason after reason after reason of why we act or, or said what we did the way we did. You, might, you may be a person or you know somebody that can reason their way out of any sin. It's a dangerous person. And if you can reason your way out of every sin, there's a warning for you in 1 John 1, 8 and 10. If we say we have no sin, ultimately, if we give reasons and reasons and excuses of why we did what we did, we're saying, I really didn't sin. You just took this the wrong way. No. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Because God is telling us there's a fellowship that's been broken. And it needs to be restored through Christ. So we, we cover ourselves in our pride. But we also cover ourselves with our pity by wallowing in our pity. When our our the way that people see us is more in tune with how we feel about ourselves and our moroseness about how evil we are because those people are miserable to be around too. Can't have a conversation without hearing about how miserable life is because I'm such a sinner and I can't get over this and I'll never get over this. That's draining too. Just as draining as the arrogant one who says, no, if you just hear me out, you'll understand why I did what I did and then there's nothing wrong. No need to confess. But when we are wallowing in self-pity, we're doing the same thing. We're throwing up reason after reason of why the fellowship can't be restored. Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Here, a little, little caveat to that proverb before we move on. Because I didn't develop into a big point, but I think it's very helpful. We need to confess and forsake. Because you know people who just keep on confessing the same sins. And if you confess the same sins, we have to ask the question, why am I still committing the same sins? Because there needs to be a confession with a repentance. Forsake. Turn the other way and run. Run away from the sin. Run away from the desire to keep on doing what trips you up. So we need to forsake covering our sin and look to confessing our sin. So let's give some categories of what this would look like for us. We need to confess our sins to God because ultimately all sins are against him. They are against him even when we sin against somebody else in our relationship in our lives. Yes, we, it's not that we sinned to God and not sinned against them. No, we sinned against them and God. But we need to make our fellowship with God right before we can make our fellowship with the others right. Psalm 51.4, King David said, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David wrote this after the prophet Nathan had told him, You're the man, you committed adultery with Bathsheba, and you lied and you murdered to try to cover it up. And there's a point that we all need a Nathan in our lives. But when David writes this, he's not saying, I have not sinned against Bathsheba. No, he absolutely sinned against her and sinned against her husband Uriah. He sinned against the nation of Israel as their king, not walking in integrity and honesty and purity. He sinned against God ultimately, and he's drawing that attention because in order for him to really have the, the 
the peace in his heart to move forward with his, with his life. He had to get that peace from God alone. So we confess to God, and we confess in private. And we are, we are to be confessing all the time because we, we think thoughts, and we, we battle temptations, and we struggle in our minds. When nobody else knows what's, what's going on in our minds, we struggle, and we, we're confessing. And, and confessing, confession means just agreeing with God. God, I'm struggling right now. I ask for your power, I ask for your spirit's anointing and blessing to be upon me, I ask for peace to settle my mind and my heart. But when there's an offense against another individual, we have to confess to that individual. Confess your sin to the one you've sinned against, to the person who knows you've sinned against him. We are to confess to the one that we have broken and a breach in fellowship in order to restore the bond of love that Christ has won for us in order to make Christ visible. So every time there's a restoration in our, our, our when the fellowship is restored in our relationships, we are showing the gospel every single time. Because look, Paul says this in Ephesians 2. Look, look at what Jesus did for us to be reconciled to us. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. See, when there's a breach in fellowship, there's host it's hostile. We're on edge. We don't know if somebody else, they're on edge. And we end up just not talking. And when there isn't talking, it's just blowing up. We can't, we can't have the self-control that we need in that moment because we're so worked up about it. But what did Jesus do? He gave himself and was broken in place of us so our fellowship could be restored, to remove the hostility. And ultimately, he's removing the hostility between us and God. So when, when that hostility is removed in our relationships, we're showing and modeling the gospel over and over and over again. We must not be sure not to keep the hostility alive by running, hiding, and covering our sin, but humble ourselves to say what uh, I've heard are the three hardest words to humanity. I am sorry. They're hard. They're very hard. Sadly, we don't have many pictures of people telling us these words. And usually the people closest to us in our lives that we want pictures of, I'm sorry, I've sinned against you, please forgive me. We don't have many of these pictures, but church, we cannot be the church without a lot of these pictures. Because if we are the church that doesn't have these pictures, we are a bunch of hypocrites. Because it's one thing to say, I'm a sinner, and then seek that reconciliation actively. That's not hypocrisy. That's truth and reality. But when we are living as if we do that, as if we have fellowship with somebody else, when there's a breach, well, that's the hypocrisy. That's when we are hiding and covering the very gospel itself. But for effective confession, two things are necessary. The words, I am sorry, and then, four, put a line in your notes. We have to be specific about it. And we have to make sure that we don't apologize like the culture apologizes. Hey, I'm sorry that you responded in a weird way to what I said. 
I'm sorry that you have the issue and the problem, and if you would just change, then I wouldn't have... Now, we're not sorry for somebody else's response, but that's the cultural way to apologize. I'm sorry you were offended. No, you weren't, because what you didn't know, you don't have any idea of why you're offended, why that other person is offended. When, when somebody else is offended, we have to recognize that I contribute to that, that I lay out something that they picked up and they ran with. Maybe their response is sinful. But we have to own our own response and the guilt and the responsibility to go and say, I'm sorry for this. I'm sorry for my anger at you. I'm sorry for lashing out at you. I'm sorry for avoiding you. Sorry, will you forgive me? Second one, will you forgive me? That's what we need to follow up because, see, here's what happens. If I just come and say I'm sorry, and thankfully years ago, uh, read in a children's parent, uh, a parenting book by Ted Tripp, Shepherding a Child's Heart, very helpful resource. He brought in the, the aspect of will you forgive me? See, when we say I'm sorry, we just still leave it out there. I'm sorry. But when we say will you forgive me, that's when the fellowship is restored because we're asking from that other person to now engage us back, to welcome us back. There's forgiveness that is granted, offered and granted, and then it's restored. See, when we just say, I'm sorry, there's still potentially a breach. And the fellowship is not what it was. But when we say, will you forgive me, now I'm calling for a response from another person. I'm sorry is just a recognition of my guilt. But will you forgive me? I'm asking that person, now come back to me. Receive me. And when that is received then we have fellowship restored. So I am sorry for something specific. Will you forgive me? Very, very important. Now, look, we have to look to create some pictures in some categories of our lives, especially in our homes. Husbands and wives, do these words happen in your marriage? They should. And they should be words that we hear a lot, right? Because when we live within proximity to one another, we're going to sin against each other. We're going to sin in our irritation. We're going to sin with, I don't like the way that you put the toothpaste back. Stop doing that. That annoys me. Those are sinful moments where we just need to say, I am sorry for my pride in expecting you to conform to me. When you should be conformed to the image of Christ and I should be I should be beside you, encouraging you to look at Jesus when I'm encouraging, rather, you to reflect my desires and my image and my reality of what I want life to be. That's when fellowship is broken. So marriages, uh, if, if it's been too long, if it's been too long and you have not apologized to one another and sought forgiveness, call me. We need to meet. Because you probably actually, I'm, I'm being all serious, you need help in discovering why it's gotten so vacant in your life. You have, you have now, you don't even remember what the original issue is. And so now there's a, just a routine of running, hiding, covering, ignoring, blaming, moving on with life. But then you end up in that breach of fellowship. You end up just living like two single people. You're not connected anymore. You're not experiencing the oneness that God has for you in your marriage. How about parenting? Parents, your kids should have pictures in their 
photo album of your family of you saying, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Not explaining it away, not reasoning it away. It's easy for us to reason with an eight-year-old. We can reason things away because they don't have the mental capacity to keep up with where we're going, and they just stare at us. And all we've done is just pummeled them with our pride and our arrogance, saying, I will not apologize. And our kids remember that. Because you know what? You remember if your parents apologize to you. You remember. And you might be still bitter that they never did. You can't raise Pharisees by not. We raise a Pharisee if we're going to expect them to live a certain way, and we're not going to show them our own vulnerability and our own humility by saying, I'm sorry, I sinned against you, yelling at you. I disciplined you in my anger. Again, helped by Ted Tripp's book, we installed that as a mechanism in our own parenting with our kids to where we, we were looking for those things and not, not just a way to check off boxes. We wanted to be a sincere, I'm sorry. And every single time I apologize to my kids, and I hope they have pictures of me doing that because we intentioned on that. I said, will you forgive me? And they immediately, of course, yes. They want the fellowship restored. And as parents, we have to make sure that they feel that the fellowship has been restored as well. Now, kids, you need, your parents need pictures of that too, of you coming to them saying, sorry, disobeyed me. Sorry. Will you forgive me? Now, remember, not apologizing for the same things over again. If we're apologizing for the same thing over and over again, we need to make, make sure that we've really repented and forsaken the sin that we love. All right, then creating pictures in the church. There should be moments where if we're living in proximity close enough to one another, if this is not happening, then it actually is a sign that we're not living close enough and in enough fellowship with one another. We can't have the church at arm's length because we don't want to get hurt. Guess what? We're a family. Families sin against each other. So when there is that sin, we have, don't cover. Don't run and hide. Confess. Go to that person. Hey, you know what? Community group. I tried to one-up you with my story, and I could tell it had an effect on how we were talking. Sorry. I'm sorry for my pride. Will you forgive me? See, it takes humility to understand how we act in public, not just how other people act in public, but also the humility to take our hearts to task quickly to where we understand that. I, I'm sorry I gossiped about you. And I know you know it because it got back to me because that's what gossip does. Gossip always gets back to the person that we're talking about. I think God installed a mechanism to prove to us, hey, words hurt. And it's, it ref, it's reflective of a heart that's not then looking to serve and stir up loving good deeds. It's a heart that wants to, I, I need allies in my life. I need to make sure that I have people that I can trust and to step on somebody else in order to promote myself so I can have allies to say, yep, idiot, yep, we know. Okay, good, feel better about myself now. Breaks fellowship. And we need to confess to those in the church that we have sinned against. Say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? But also, I want to put, bring up the category of the workplace and neighborhoods. And this, is, this is the category of unbelievers. Do you know what? The gospel goes with 
like wildfire when you confess your sin to an unbeliever and ask them to forgive you. And yes, that's absolutely biblical inbound, biblically inbound. It stuns, doesn't it? When somebody owns their sin, the world takes notice. Uh, I don't know if you caught the story about Benjamin Watson, the former tight end for the New Orleans Saints, uh, who's now back with the New England Patriots, who uh, originally drafted him out of college. He has to, he's been decided, he retired, and after he retired, began to take supplements, knew what he was taking, but then the New England Patriots called and said, hey, will you come back for another year? He and his wife pray about it, and Benjamin Watson's a strong believer, loves the Lord, and he's been used mightily in the culture with, uh, in, in terms of race, but also his wife, there's a video going around on social media of his wife standing up for the unborn. I mean, it's, they're doing some huge things for the kingdom. And he, his, he took some supplements that actually turned up positive on the drug test that he had in going back to the New England Patriots. So he said, I read his little bio, he, at one point he said, he thought, well, I'm just going to continue to retire so nobody will know about this. Hide. Run and hide. I'm going to cover. And he said, no. It's an opportunity. So he went and said, here's why I did what I did. I knew what I was doing. But then I really just honestly forgot that I had taken those supplements and I was drug tested and it came back positive. So you know what I'm doing? Taking my suspension. And I'm happy and, and proud to be on a team that still wants to stand by me even afterwards. And you know, nobody's covering that story. Because when people confess and they apologize appropriately, it doesn't grow these legs of that, that commentators and people. No, it's when denial happens that every, the news reports run after them. Oh, well, hold on a second, hold on a second. That's why everybody ran after Lance Armstrong as long as they did. He denied and denied and denied and denied. Lying. And we all know about something. Because you know what? We all want justice. That's what we want. You know the most popular TV shows are not comedies anymore? They're justice shows? Because we feel it. We want there to be justice in our lives. And when somebody has sinned against us, we want justice in that moment, don't we? And we have to protect our own hearts to not go after them and, and attack them in our minds, crucify them in our minds to make them pay for what they've done to us. No, we need to seek that fellowship as well. So, <coughs> excuse me, co-workers, neighbors, rudeness happens, we're sinful in those moments, we respond negatively and sinfully, those are opportunities for gospel proclamation by us humbling ourselves and asking for forgiveness. All right, some guiding wisdom that will, will carry us. Confessing our sins to those we're walking with can be very, a very helpful means of allowing others to serve us through admonishing in prayer. So, look, we, we confess our sins. We have people that we're walking with for accountability, for mutual encouragement. We are to confess our sins and struggles to them. But that doesn't replace going to the ones that we have sinned against. So if, if somebody's walking with us for mutual encouragement, they should be saying, all right, have you gone to that person yet? And when are you going to go to that person? And I'm going to follow up with that person to make sure that you go to that person. That's very appropriate for us to do. 
But we, it's not a substitute for confessing our sin to the one that we've sinned against. We seek the wisdom and discernment and help of others as a means of walking by the Spirit to not carry out the desires of our flesh. And a guiding wisdom is when you wonder if you should tell an accountability partner of your struggle, if you're wondering, should I say that? Yes. That's when you know. Yeah, I should say something. Because I don't want the enemy to have something in my mind, have some foothold in my mind or my heart, in my affection to draw me away from him. But we are to not confess what's in our minds. Here's the thing. If I'm jealous of you because you have a lot of money and spend it in ways that I really would love to spend money that way, and I have not sinned against you by telling you, hey, you're reckless with your money. That's a sin. Sin of judgment, pride in my own heart. I just, I didn't say it in love and all those things. It, so I'm just thinking it. I am jealous of you because you have more money than me, and I, I wish I had that money too. If the other person has no idea I'm thinking that, that's not the opportunity to go to that person and say, you know what, I've been convicted today and I'm really jealous of you for your money. That makes the other person go, all right, this is awkward now. And now I have no idea how to respond to this. It becomes embarrassing on both parts. You don't go to somebody, if you're struggling in your mind, I, 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 people have told me that. That they literally went to somebody, I, I, I struggle, I've been struggling over you for years. In my mind, don't no, you don't you know, confess to God. Make sure you have people in your life that you're able to look. I don't want my mind to go these places. So when we follow up together and having coffee, I need you to ask me, hey, where's your mind going? Are you sinning in your mind? John Stott has some helpful things for us in his book, Confess Your Sins. He says to say, I'm sorry I was rude to you, or I'm sorry I showed off in front of you is right, but not. I'm afraid I've had jealous thoughts about you all day. Such a confession does not help. It only embarrasses. If the sin remains secret in the mind and does not erupt into words or deeds, it must be confessed to God alone. It is true that according to the teaching of Jesus, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. But this is adultery in the sight of God and is to be confessed to him, not to her. The rule is always that secret sins must be confessed secretly to God. And private sins must be confessed privately to the injured party. You don't want to complicate the issue by sharing in the wrong ways, but we also make sure we're taking our own hearts to task by doing it faithfully, obediently, and appropriately. And then we consider the restored fellowship. The peace that Jesus won for us is a wonderful balm to our relationships. There's a healing where James says, pray for another that you may be healed. Yes, of that sickness perhaps. The sickness that, that unconfessed sin possibly has caused or it's in the way you have sin in the way that needs to be confessed. And God has left that prayer unanswered so you can restore fellowship with him. We, it's a balm when we have that reconciliation, when we have that fellowship restored. It's healing for us. And when Christians reconcile, the world sees the gospel in full color. The restoration of our fellowship with one another gives confidence to our restored fellowship with God so our prayers go unhindered. They're answered. And James gives the example of Elijah. In the next verse, Elijah was a man with a, a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three days, uh, three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heavens rained, and the earth bore its fruit. Why did he bring that up? 
James, in the context of his letter, is very concerned about fellowship. Remember Elijah's ministry was about getting Israel to recognize that their fellowship with God had been broken and they weren't restoring it because of their faithlessness and disobedience? So he says, look, Elijah's prayers were in the context of seeking restoration, seeking restored fellowship with God. So when we're asking God to restore fellowship, oh, he answers those prayers. We have confidence that he answers those prayers no matter what our, our uh, life says or the nature that we have. Prayers experience, prayer as the experience of God's presence is trusting his promise for somebody else to experience the same blessing. What does that mean for us? That means we humble ourselves. That's where this starts. It starts with each one of us humbling ourselves so we will confess our sins. Not cover, but confess. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that as we uh, consider and think about fellowship with you. God, we, we ask that we would be restored in that fellowship. We ask, God, that we would experience restoration over and over and over again so we can have uh, confidence that we can experience that restoration with others. Lord, I do ask that if there's, there's those that, that we have sinned against and now maybe you're putting them on our hearts and minds right now. Father, I pray that this, the sun would not go down today with fellowship still broken. I pray, Lord, you would bind up the broken, heal the wounded, provide the healing that we, the balm that we look for in our relationship with you, but also may it be felt in our relationship with one another. God, may we not run from confession. May we not hide from confession. May we not cover up in our pride or pity, but God, may we confess understanding that our fellowship with you is the, is the grace and the power that we experience for everyday life and we want others to feel that and experience it in our lives. 